Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Issa as host Issa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Everybody loves a lover. I'm a lover. Everybody loves me. Anyhow, that's how I feel. Wow, I feel just like a Pollyanna. Hey, everybody, and welcome to yet another immortal installment of In Bed with Nick and Megan. Your favorite podcast today, starring Rob Lowe. Literally, Rob Lowe. I am literally in bed with you, and it's <laughs> very exciting to be with you both. It's so nice we to call see him you, Rolo. Rob. Yeah. You know, my my whole career, I never had a nickname, and I got a nickname on Parks and Recreation, and I use it all the time. Still, it's on my luggage. What? <laughs> totally. Rolo. That's so great. I can't believe it I can't believe no one came up with that. I mean, once once J Lo landed, yes. you would think Rolo would follow soon after. No, J- when J Lo landed, what followed suit was Arlo. Oh. And that was around for a, there was a, there was a moment in time when that was the nickname, but right. it Rolo's doesn't compete better. with Rolo. Come on. Oh, come on. You can roll a Rolo to your pal. It, it's yeah. chocolate-covered caramel. And fun for all involved. <laughs> oh, Robbie, it's so fun to see you. I, You're such a fun person to hang out with. Yeah, you you always have all the good gossip. I know. I know. Isn't it true, though? Well, I, I mean... My my gossip spigot is sh- is you know it's been shut down a little bit you know I so know I've got good gossip on my dogs and my boys <laughs> and Cheryl Lowe and how that's is about Cheryl it. Lowe? She is great as always. Um, she's cooking, which is fantastic because um, she start you know she has her own jewelry line, so she's so busy that you know she hasn't cooked for me in many years, and it's great. It's like I'm back uh. to like. I remember like the the days when we were dating and I was like, wow, this beautiful, smart, wonderful person also cooks great food. I am in. That's so nice. You guys had us over to your house one time and we, we spent the night in your guest house and it was so much fun. And we sat there in your den for like five hours. And five hours. you rolled out the stories like nobody's business you have so many good stories that it's crazy and if if anyone has not read rob's books please read them if you want a lot of the story because a lot of the stories are in those books yeah right? yeah yeah for but sure those are so, such and, good books yeah and i would doubly recommend we listen to them on audio yes. book uh read by the author in his dulcet tones uh, so we our our secret to pleasure is doing a jigsaw puzzle on this very dining room table while listening to yes, Rob Lowe audio. Yes, we have done that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That makes mm-hmm. me so happy. It's it's different. You're it, you're a little different though because you grew up in Los Angeles. Well, yeah, not entirely. 
I, I look at it that I had the best of both worlds, really, because I, I, I really grew up in the Midwest in Dayton, Ohio. Um, mm. Moved there when, when you know, when I was six months old. My parents moved there, and I was there until I was just about twelve. So, like, my childhood proper was like you know, Nerf football in the lawn with the guys and wiffle ball and, you know, sledding and grabbing the back of cars and being dragged when it was icy <laughs> on the streets. And then yeah, when I was don't about try thir- that at home. Yeah. Then when I was like 13, I moved to Malibu, California, which was like a complete culture shock. And I got to you know, kind of appreciate Malibu as a teenager, which was to say the least, uh, extraordinary. But because you then started as an actor almost right away, like launched into really high profile things, you kind of know everybody. <laughs> like you, yeah. you, you know everybody in a way that not very many people do. Well, it's true. I mean, I think part of it is just a, it's a math equation. Like you say, I, I, I started, you know, banging the pavement as a, child actor in 1976 and I've been working ever since. And, yeah. you know, I've come across tons of people and, um, and, and the stories that you collect, they're my favorite possessions, right? Cause like, it's that old thing of, you know, your memories should be your most valued possession. And mm-hmm. I've always, for whatever reason, known that. So I, uh, I, I never forget a good story. No, I know we've been the lucky recipients of uh, many of those stories. Is there one that comes to mind that you could share with us? Maybe just a little. I mean, you know, the the, and I wrote a little bit about it in in my book. Is you know when I was, you know, when I moved to LA, um, you have to understand it was before MTV. It was before Us Magazine. It was certainly before, it was before the internet. So it was before anything. So the business was very different. It was like an adult's business. If you were a child actor, the only jobs were playing the son or daughter of a star. They weren't making movies about you. There was no John Hughes. There was no nothing. I mean, there were the weird one-off Disney movies, of course, but the industry hadn't turned into what it is today which is nothing but the celebration of youth. Mm. So I, I came into it at a time where there wasn't a ton of work and there wasn't a ton of young actors. There really weren't. And it certainly wasn't what it is now where every kid in high school in Santa Monica has a Screen Actors Guild card. That, that is not the culture I arrived to. Mm. So people even here thought it was a little weird that I wanted to be an actor and didn't help me with the girls. They thought, you know, they thought I was, I was like a ballet dancer. Like if I said actor, <laughs> the, they, they thought ballet dancer, which is a euphemism, which I'm sure you guys can do the math on. So, um, you know, everybody at Santa Monica high school was like a beach volleyball player, which they didn't play in Dayton, Ohio or, you know, whatever. So I was like, not, I was, the girls were not having, what I was selling. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. Oh, it's, it's the truth. And, um, I did an after school special. Do you remember those? Like they were on yeah. in the middle, they were on the middle of the day and they were really gnarly. Cause they were just like way ahead of their time. The subject matter was really intense. Like mm-hmm. my mom hung herself out of <laughs> depression and the titles always described what was on, what the plot was. Right. Yeah. Mine was Schoolboy father. No. (laughs) (laughs) Starring, uh, starring opposite, uh, the young ingenue, Dana Plato from different strokes. So I used that as a, an excuse to go to the cutest girl in the school and ask her if she wanted to watch my after school special. And uh, Jennifer was her name. And she said yes. And she invited me over to her house to watch it with her dad. And she said, you know, watch it with my dad because he, he's in acting. And I, I walked. Uh, so I drove to Beverly Hills for the first time ever. And first mansion I ever saw. Drove up the driveway, knocked on the door. And her dad answered. And her dad was Cary Grant. <gasps> what? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> was her mom Diane Cannon? Her mom, yeah, her mom's Diane Cannon. Oh, so you my can imagine. God. You can, she was really cute. <laughs> I mean, uh. can you imagine? And and he was like, I never forget because he was he answered the door in a white terry cloth bathrobe. Sure. And and he was he was like, was it a short one? Well, we'll get to that part. Oh God. <laughs> And uh, he he was like, young man, Jennifer is waiting for you in my bedroom. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and uh, and we watched my after school special in Cary Grant's bedroom with Cary Grant. With Cary Grant, and um, it was the first time I ever had a leading role of my own, and it was just the three of us. And afterwards, he was like, you're quite good. You remind me of a Warren Beatty. And I was like, wow. Because truth be told, I didn't really know who Cary Grant was. I was like, I was like, yeah, I kind of know the name, like Cary Granite from the Flintstones. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and then as I left, he chased me down the driveway in his robe. And that's when I saw things that shouldn't be seen by a young <laughs> flippity floppity flip. <laughs> he was running down the driveway. And uh, yeah, was... cause he had a, he had an armful of uh, Fabergé products. What that, he was going to give you? Did he, uh, I thought you might like some brute after shave and soap on a rope. <laughs> oh my God. He was on the board of Fabergé. So he wanted to make sure I had the products. Pretty oh, sweet. My gosh. Your yeah. first swag. Literally my first swag. Was from Cary Grant. <laughs> Crazy. So you he watched your after school special on a bed with Cary Grant in a robe. You can't make that up. That is uh, that's quite a story. See now this is just the tip of the Rob Berg story iceberg. So that so years later I had you know gone on to do movies, tons of movies, and uh, it was probably in the late eighties, mid eighties. I saw Carrie again and hadn't seen him since I was a 15 year old kid. And it was a big black tie event. And he was sitting at a table with Robert Mitchum, Gregory Peck, Robert Wagner and Prince Rainier of Monaco. Oh my God. And they were, they were all in black tie. And I went over to pay my respects and said hello to all of them. And, as I walked away, I distinctly heard Robert Wagner say, you know, that young man has banged every one of our daughters. <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh. so true. <laughs> you can't make it up. Oh, Rob. You also, you are a little Warren Beatty-ish in many ways, but you're also a little Robert Wagner-ish. Yeah. Our, well, that's how I ended up in doing him in Austin Powers was that um, I had known him a little bit. Uh, we had, I was friends with his, with his daughters, as he alluded to. Mm, okay. and, um, and so when Mike Myers was writing Austin Powers, he knew that I did a really funny Robert Wagner impression. And so he wrote that into the script for Austin Powers 2. I don't remember what Robert Wagner... Talked like well, my my impression was based on the fact that he referred to every good restaurant in L.A. not by the name of the restaurant, but by who the mater D was <laughs> at every restaurant. I just love that kind of. It just made me laugh. He was like, he's like, um, I think Gigi at the Palm is the best. <laughs> uh, That's. Weird. I love that. It's so, so crazy. good. That was the whole predicate. Because I mean, like you know, it's like it's it's one thing to do impersonations of people, but I think the really good ones are when what you're saying as them clearly has some sort of bizarre tangential connection right. to to who they are, and it, it's hard to top Robert Wagner's obsession with L.A. Mater D's. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so you guys did ye old parks and recreation together, somewhat right. historically, we and did. Uh, had a had a blast doing it. We did. Ha we did have an absolute blast. I, I that's the only you know 
uh, seven season show I've done. You you know you have a much longer history of doing all kinds of different TV series. Um, so for me, I mean I've I've been around a lot of t- you know I've, I've guested on stuff. Uh, so I've seen a lot of shows, but uh, which allows me to be aware how exceptional Mike Schur's set and and our producer Morgan Sackett. What a great time we had, but. From your point of view, somebody who's sort of seen it all, how, how did you take it? Well, first of all, people forget that you and I, our first episode of television together was not the uh, Parks and Recreation. It was the West Wing. People forget yes. that Nick was on the West Wing. I was very I'm briefly. Right it was like the sixth episode of the West did, Wing. And, and weren't you talking about Wild Wolves? Yeah, it was uh, it was Big Block of Cheese Day. Yes, Big Block of Cheese Day is a very famous episode. And CJ uh, gives some time to all the crackpots that have requests. So I was one of three animal rights activists uh, uh, lobbying for a wolves-only highway, like not nine billion dollars <laughs> for a wolves-only highway, so that the wolves could uh, like get over get over. Uh, the freeway and get get to more breeding grounds. Amazing! I remember that episode. It's one of well, all all those. You know, by the way, I think the the West Wing and Parks to me are on opposite ends of the good TV. Not even good TV, great TV. I'm really proud to have been in. I will put Parks up against any comedy, um, and I'll put the West Wing up against any drama. I, I just think they're both great. And you know, Mike yeah. told me when I first came in to talk about being on. Parks and Rec, he, he said that when they were developing the show, which originally was going to be possibly a, a spinoff of The Office, they they all loved The West Wing so much. It was their favorite show. And they were like, well, if the drama version takes place in the White House, where would the comedy version take place? Hmm. And that's how they came up with Parks and Rec. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of Aaron Sorkin references, uh, especially early on, where where things were couched as Leslie Nopes walking and talking versus the characters on the West Wing. Mm-hmm. They um, there was one one uh, Parks that we did. I feel like it was mid in into my run where because Parks and Rec was famously horribly lit, like <laughs> famously bad <laughs> on purpose. Like that, mm. the, the, the conceit was it's a documentary and everybody would look, you know what I mean? It would, no one's supposed to look good on it. I arrived on that set and was like, can't you cut, you know, a late 30 year old actress a break and put a fucking scrim over her head in the middle of the high sunlight? I mean, good <laughs> Lord. I was like, Hey, Polar, you and I need to have a little talk ski, <laughs> but they did in one episode, put a beautiful, arc light through Chris Traeger's window so I could go and stand in it like Sam Seaborn in the White House. <laughs> it was the only time they ever put a pretty light in Parks and Rec ever was that one episode. <laughs> I was very grateful. I I never even thought about that. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, I guess th- it's, you know, lit like it they're actually in shooting a documentary. Yeah, like we're under fluorescence. Uh mm. there there was a, a great story. Uh I think the first episode or two, right away, the DP uh Mike Trim at the time, um, you know, was was very talented and experienced. And Greg Daniels was directing this episode and he called Mike Trim over to the monitor and said, I think it was in my office, in fact. He said, look at this. There, there was a beautiful like little shaft of sunlight coming in and hitting my desk very artistically. And, and Greg said, Mike, do you see this? And, and Mike proudly said, yeah. And Greg said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> don't give me any of this pretty bullshit. <laughs> That's so funny. What? <laughs> so did you guys... Um... I can't believe I'm asking this question, but did you guys do like any pranks or anything like that? Because it was a pretty with, I don't know, you had some, so many. We had, I, I mean, like I, when I look Pratt back on it, I, my, I have so many great memories. Um, I remember early on, 
what I still didn't, I didn't know many of the people really very well at all, but I remember so vividly, Nick, you and I sitting on the steps of the steak restaurant that had been shut down that you wanted to, <laughs> and, and, yeah, you were worried, and you were worried that the steaks about what the, what had happened to the steaks that were still left in there. <laughs> and, and you were, and you were talking about the steaks as if they were made like baby animals. And, <laughs> and, and, and I remember it was like, it was like a scene from old yeller. What happened to the steaks? It was, it's one of my favorite memories. And then, and then, we always used to do what we would call the fun runs where you would just follow any instinct, however bizarre. And I remember Nick was so desperate to see it, to check on the stakes and the closed down restaurant. That he started climbing the building. <laughs> quite, right. quite. And then the other great one I remember is <laughs> when, why, why there was, we all got, our characters all got food poisoning. Do you remember this one? Oh Yeah. And we were crawling around my, we were in my office, crawling around in our stomachs. It was so funny. <laughs> and we so, laughed so, I've never had more fun or laughed more in my life. <laughs> it was me, you, and Adam Scott. And I, I feel like I, I could be conflating a couple storylines, but I feel like we may have been sampling hors d'oeuvres for his like wedding reception or That's something. That's right. That's right. Uh, and and Adam's character Ben was always trying to spring d- weird like calzones, different <laughs> mini calzones on us. <laughs> but you know, it's it's actually it's an interesting question because often in in lame like behind the scenes video footage, that's one of the things they always say is like, so can you can you remember any good pranks or you know, do you have any good stories from backstage? And I I think that pranking generally. Uh, occurs when there's a certain level of like tension and focus that needs to be alleviated. Right. It's it's like, uh, you know, a a Clooney, Brad Pitt, like heist movie. Things are, the the budget is huge and, and, you know, everything's uh, on a tight wire. So you got to pull pranks to make each other laugh and say, Hey, let's, let's remember to have fun out there on parks and parks and rec. Every every moment was a prank, was like a highly crafted prank on purpose. And so there was really no need to do anything beyond, I feel, beyond what we were doing for well, work. Well, yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's funny. When I think of pranks, I think of like, that time George Clooney put his pig in Brad Pitt's toilet. You're like, <laughs> okay, all right, I guess. And um, I had done a movie with Jason Reitman, um, called thank you for smoking and i really like the movie it's a really good little movie and it made J- jason became a huge director and was directing clooney on um uh what's the movie where he, he plays a guy that runs around firing people it's really good he's awesome in it george is amazing in it up in the air oh yeah that's oh, a yeah, great yeah. movie yeah so they're shooting up in the air in miami i happen to be there and i'm like i'm gonna go visit the set but i'm not gonna tell jason i'm coming i'm just gonna go surprise him so i get to the set and everybody is so like, like, shh, be quiet, shh, no, 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 no. like you'd have thought I was trying to get into the sit room at the White House. <laughs> and I was like, all right, okay, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet when the camera's rolling. Oh, I should be quiet when the camera's rolling, really? Oh, I, good concept. <laughs> Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. And I go from like one security barrier to another security barrier to another. I just want to say hi to fucking Jason Reitman. And I, I get to the set and you know how you come onto a set and you don't really know where the cameras are and you don't know what's going on. And you could just as easily end up coming in the wrong end of the room as the right end. And yeah. I come in and I realize I'm like coming through a fake closet into a bedroom set where George Clooney is in the bed naked with the actress, the redheaded actress. And so now, once again, I can't really walk on the set. And Jason hasn't seen me. And I was, oh, but this is great. George, it's, this is George Clooney, the king of the pranks. He's the guy who put the toilet in Brad Pitt's bathroom. He's the one whose pig <laughs> runs wild down Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is great. This is a, an opportunity. So right as they start to roll, George had his back to, to me. And in the scene, I was watching rehearsal. The actress gets in and surprises him. 
So they roll. I look at the actress and say, no, and I get in the bed. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. And I start caressing George. He's moving in a groove. And then he turns over and looks at me and. It was good fun was had by all. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Oh my god. That's a yeah, but we good didn't one. Do, yeah, we didn't do that on parks. We were No, you're exactly right though. Like I don't do pranks, but George Clooney is literally the only guy he's I don't know. I think it's Also, I also fun. think that people who do pranks are also the people who tell jokes. Yes. I never yeah, I, right. I I've I've we never told one joke ever. You, no. A- a- Amy Poehler is not coming into the makeup trailer. Hey, guys, I heard a great one. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, that's jokes are not the provenance of funny people usually. Right. Agreed. I actually only can ever remember one joke. Uh, and you you too, right? Like, I can't even remember jokes. Yeah, I, I try um, because people ask me a lot, uh, especially since I st- have started touring it's weird. Like people accused me of being a stand-up or or a comedian for years, and I would say, "No, I'm a theater actor." Um, and then finally, they I feel like they bullied me into becoming a stand-up, and now I actually <laughs> tour as a comedian. And so, so then I'll you know I'll be like on tour in England and hanging out with some friends, and they introduce me to their dad, and he says, "Oh, you you saw him the other night at the at the theater." let's have a joke. And <laughs> I look around and say, uh, I, I don't, I'm not. <laughs> oh, God. Just, you have to take my word uh, for it. I'm hilarious. Uh. <laughs> Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars, because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota. So little time. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. So everybody knows that you and Nick have worked together, but very few people know that you and I have worked together. They don't know our love, our story. (laughs) So um, I guess I should tell this since I was the the one at fault. Um, (laughs) So uh, about last night, the... Mm -hmm. Immortal teen comedy about last night, 1985. Um, I had tested for the part that Elizabeth Perkins ended up playing. Spoiler alert, didn't get it. Um, and so they gave me this small part of their of uh, Demi Moore and Elizabeth Perkins' friend, Pat. I'm only in uh, like three scenes or something. Um, very small part. Very memorable. Very memorable. Memorable role. Pat um, makes uh, kisses Rob Lowe's character at the New New Year's Eve party, and Demi Moore's character sees that, and then that causes her to break up with him. So that's where all the trouble begins. And um, so I, it was the 80s, right? And yes. for some reason, I had this impression that the thing that people did when they kissed in movies was they really went to town. They, like wait, I, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Stop. That's not your impression. <laughs> okay. <good>. That's <laughs> what they did. Okay. And they, meaning you. My impression. <laughs> yeah. It is. But it was like, like. You had to. That's the. that Because we were all. 
like everybody was like a method actor. So if you had to cry, you cried. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, so everybody was doing whatever they called for. Yeah. Okay. So, um, wait, I'm going to have another, uh, field of questioning right after this story that just came to mind. So I thought that that was what you did. So when we, when the, on the day we were going to shoot that scene, the first take, I attacked Rob Lowe with my tongue basically. And, um, (laughs) he said, cut. And I remember like, (laughs) there was a sort of a weird dead silence on the set. And Rob (laughs) was kind of like, looked a little stunned and sort of looked around <laughs> for help. Um, uh, and that is, I was not looking for help. I was <laughs> very happy. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ed Zwick, the director, came over and kind of like quietly said to me, yeah, um, let's do another take. And on this one, maybe like, I don't know, kind of pull back on the kiss a little bit. Okay, we've got it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so then we did it again, and the kiss was. We only did two takes, I think, and the second take is the one that's in the movie. Um, but like, okay, wait. So then, if if it was the going thing to to like really like ram your tongue down people's throats, then why was I specifically asked not to do that? Probably. Here's my guess. Knowing Ed, uh, it was probably we probably went at it so hard that they wanted to have a version where Demi sees it and it's not so overtly Oh, because crazy. your character then wouldn't be as big of a that's an a-hole. Like, oh, okay. Well, I've carried the shame of that. You, you should not carry that. You should not carry that. better. No, it's, uh, <laughs> that was probably my fault. I was probably like, hey, let's go. I, yeah, I don't think so. Although I do remember that, um, on the lunch breaks, you, at least on one occasion, had um, an extra in your trailer and you guys weren't <laughs> just talking. I had a lot to discuss. <laughs> and I also remember Demi Moore and Emilio Estevez, who she was dating at the time, standing in the middle of the set, in that in that bar set, um, where, you know, there was tons of people um, wildly making out making the, you know, what I had done to you look tame. And, you yeah. know, it was two celebrities, so everybody was staring at them. Hell yeah. Yeah, they, uh, no, they had to send Emilio the outtakes of the love scenes for his approval. Oh, wow. Really? Wow. Oh, my gosh. I because I, are... then the, the only reason I know that is when they broke up, he gave them to me in a box. <laughs> oh, wow. That is so interesting. <laughs> when they broke up. Yeah, <laughs> we, I don't so need these anymore. Funny. We could well, really do a whole episode just to, because then I. So years before we met working on Parks and Rec, um, I, I, Megan had told me about this, about last night's situation, but I had not seen it since uh, Megan and I had met. And one day it came. One day I, I, I was watching TV, and I happened upon about last night, and I randomly saw the scene. And Megan was in the kitchen, and I remember just yelling, "Honey, yeah, do you love Rob Lowe?" <laughs> I hope my response was yes. And she said yes. And, uh, <laughs> Yay! <clears throat> Well, no, so it was always a little bit of a thing. And then on Parks and Rec, I don't remember the episode, but for some reason we had to kiss at one point. It might yes, that's my, right. Oh, right. It might have been my birthday episode. Yeah. Yes. I can't remember. but It might have been off camera. But in, yeah, that was also in my trailer. Yeah. In I just assumed this lunch. being the, uh, the aughts or uh, the 2000 uh, teens that, you know, you just go for it. Oh my god! And uh, <laughs> etc. Well, okay, wait a minute. So I also remember that they had—I don't know—like a little while into shooting, a couple weeks into shooting, they had told to me more that they thought she needed to lose weight and made her eat brown rice and steamed vegetables for lunch every day. That's like all they would give her to eat, and it was weird because that. she was not in any way overweight. And that was at that time, that was in the 80s. And 
it's just crazy like what all the stuff that used to happen that doesn't really happen like that anymore. Totally. Okay, so the thing I was thinking of before that I wanted the subject, the other topic I wanted to broach was you said that everything was so method. And I know a lot of stories from that time, from like the 80s especially, of love scenes where like stuff was really happening. I think that happened in the 70s too. Well, it it did happen in the 70s and we all sort of know historically what those movies, I mean, it's, it's um, starting with Brando and um, help me with the Brando movie, the Bertolucci movie. Uh, yeah. In Paris. The butter. Uh, last, last Tango last in Paris. Last Tango in Paris. Yeah. Last Tango in Paris. Um, n- n- these are all legendary stories. Uh, Nicholson. And the Postman Always Rings Twice. Postman Always Rings Twice. Um, Officer and a Gentleman. Oh. Um, another famous one. There's all kinds of them. I remember when you would get scripts in the 80s, you could always tell, I would always open to page 73. Because page 73 <laughs> was always where the love scene was. Because <laughs> really? when the writers would get into that very difficult mid-second act wasteland, which any writer will recognize hearing this podcast, the solve was always, they fuck. So I would always go to page 73 and go, eh, yeah, here we go again. There it is. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I know I know actors who, you know, have told me, um, oh, yeah, well, we were shooting this thing and, you know, it kind of slipped in a couple of times. And then I saw her at lunch and she was like, hey, it kind of slipped in. And then we both had a good laugh. Yeah. <laughs> and and then also, you know, those those movies we we mentioned were full on, you know, they just shot it like a. They shot it like a porno and then edited down. Oh, yeah. That was, I mean, look, everything about the movie business today bears zero resemblance to the movie business. Really? Everything? Yeah. Everything. I, th- there's, yeah. I, I see no resemblance in the movie industry today to what it was in the 70s or 80s at all. Nothing. Well, it's crazy, it's crazy. even just the idea, um, it's crazy to imagine that shooting any sort of real life uh, fornication on a set that we're used to working on, but then extrapolate that back and do it on a set where you're shooting 35 millimeter film. Mm. Oh, I know. (laughs) I remember the last time I shot on something with a 35 millimeter camera. And I remember the first time that, uh, um, that, that they were trying to start digital on sets and it's, I remember I used to do push-ups every time they changed the the magazine, the film magazine. That was something I used to do just to keep my energy up. I, that those days are long gone. I haven't seen um, film on a set in probably ten years at least. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And now they have intimacy coordinators for love scenes. Which, by the way, they should. Which is good. I mean, I was always. Oh, it's great. Yeah. And in, in all seriousness, I was always really like. Hey, are you good with this? I was thinking about that. What about this? I mean, I was, I, I was always, that, I just did that naturally. And now that that's a sort of a mandate, I think it's, it's really good. Cause I always had tremendous um, empathy for a woman, particularly coming onto a set with like a small part and they're mm-hmm. like joining this big movie. They're only going to be there two days. They don't know anybody. And now they got to do a scene with a star. I was always like, wow, that's really, really hard to do. That's, you know, I have to say, brutal. like, you were always a real, you know, you're obviously a really nice guy, but you were always really nice. And you didn't, I mean, when you were, however old you were, when, how old were you when, when you shot About Last Night? About Last Night, I probably was 22. Yeah. So you were such a cute kid and you were the lead in the movie and you'd been the lead in a lot of other movies already and you were you know, quite well known and you could have been a little bit more of a dick, but you were really nice um, to everybody. So I think, you know, that's a good thing. I think that's so important. That's how people continue to work. I mean, nobody wants wants to hire you if if you're a bummer. um, It's one of the things I always tell people when they ask about show business is they go, what star is a dick? And I'm like, here's the thing. If they're a big star and they've been around a long time, they're not a dick. Mm-hmm. You just yeah. don't survive. I mean, you can get away with a couple, three or four hit movies, maybe. Yeah. But if you're like a real dick, you're, you're not, you're, there's, you're, they'll just, the minute 
there's an excuse, you're done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that happen a couple of times. And you're right. Like the people who've been around for a long time are always cool. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's so nice. So, yeah, all those changes are for the good in terms of, you know, uh, you know, especially for women, they're all for the good. But the shit went down back in the day. Oh, my it gosh. Did. But I those movies it. are great. Like, you know, About Last Night is – you know, people, uh, I, I recommend that movie if people, if people want to watch a, like a 80s movie. I, I think it still holds up. Everybody's oh, really good, good in it. Yeah. It's a really, no, it, I love that movie so much. I mean, you can, like St. Elmo's Fire is another one people talk about that I did. But that's, a, I recommend for that for the, the um, volume of Hair Moose and, <laughs> and uh, the kitsch factor. I, I can still play the theme on the saxophone. <laughs> I can and fake I know the words. Play. I know the words to that goddamn thing. Well, that, well, you know the the crazy thing about that song is David Foster is a friend of mine, and he he knows I tell the story, so I'm not speaking out of school. He had to write a song for a guy who is wheelchairing across Canada for charity. He also was tasked with writing a song for Saint Elmo's Fire that had to have the lyrics St. Elmo's Fire in it. <laughs> so what he did was he just wrote one song for both. So if you really break down the lyrics to St. Elmo's Fire, which never made sense, they only make sense when you realize it's about a wheelchairing charity oh guy <laughs> wheelchairing across Canada and oh by the way St. Elmo's Fire. Yeah. That's so funny. Want to be a man in motion all I need is a pair of wheels look at my future's bright St. Elmo's Fire. Oh my god, <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, so you're so um, it's interesting because with your looks and all of that, I mean, that is sort of something to have to overcome as an actor a lot of the time because you don't just want to play like the cute person. For, Are you talking for to me or <laughs> I'm talking to Nick right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, obviously. Rob, you should chime in on this yeah, too. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, you're so funny. And so uh, that probably, you know, that helped you a lot with, breaking down those walls. However, like one of my favorite comedy things that you did was, um, what's it called? Behind the Candelabra. Is that the name of that? Yeah. That's such Behind a great movie. You are Good so Lord. funny in that movie that it's crazy. So how did that all come about? And like, how long did it take you to do that? Make them to do the makeup and the wig and the <laughs> whole thing is amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. I was, I was doing that while we were shooting Parks and Rec. And thank you. That's one of my favorite things I've done. Ugh. And I love that. I love it when people know it and remember it. And um, because it's, it's me getting the, ch an actor is only as good as the opportunities they're given. Mm -hmm. And that was an opportunity to, to, to play at the farthest edge of my range as an actor. And yeah. um, what happened was I'd been following this notion of Steven Soderbergh making a movie about Liberace with Michael Douglas and Matt Damon. And I was like, oh my, I am so fucking down for that movie. <laughs> and I was following it just as an audience member. And I got a phone call that Soderbergh wanted to offer me a part in it. And I, I remember I was on a plane and I didn't have Wi-Fi to read the script. And I told my agent I would do it. And I'm, I'm obviously I'm going to do it. No, I don't care what the part is. I'm going to be in this movie. And I read it, and the description was that the, my, my character's name is Dr. Stars, uh, looked like he was made of plastic. And so I, I had an idea of what I wanted him to look like, um, because I'd seen a lot of guys that looked like that in the fifth row of the Laker games. <laughs> it was, and it was very important. They weren't on the floor, <laughs> but they also weren't. In terrible seats. It was very important. They were in the fifth row. <laughs> so that was the way I, that's what I had in my mind. And what, what do you think these people's professions were who were in the fifth row with a lot of work done? 
exactly yeah. this, like, you know, uh, like weird third rate plastic surgeons, yeah. um, getting high on their own supply, getting yeah. high on their own supply. So I, um, I called Steven and we'd never met. And I was saying, you know, yeah, Michael Douglas playing, um, you know, Liberace, you got Matt Damon in butt tight velour pants. Like how big a swing can I take with this? And he was like, swing away. And I was like, that's all I needed to hear. And amazing. so I, I, and their makeup team came up with this amazing, really, really outlandish oh. over the top look. And, um, when I walked on set for the first time, well, if you see the movie, if you ever watch the movie again, in my opening scene, I'm sitting on a couch next to Matt and Matt will not look at me. He couldn't look at me. He couldn't look at me without laughing. I'm sure. Did uh, you know him? You must've known him before. Right? I'd never met him. I knew oh, Michael. Really? He's such a Ma- nice guy. He's, oh, he's one of my favorite actors. I mean, yeah. I've known Michael off and on for years, but I'd never met Matt. And, and yeah. that was a, just a thrill. We had so much fun. Oh God. It was so funny. It makes me. And you know, Oh, the voice. Again. Oh, so the other thing is because I, I knew that, they were playing very campy with those characters. And I was certainly going to look like half of like, like maybe I was half of a woman. I knew I wanted to have some sort of really masculine undertone to it. Cause I wanted it to be sort of different. So I used the voice. You'll appreciate this. I think Nick, I just used the voice of the guy who was um, on um, uh, you're going to like the way you look was the, not the, the men's warehouse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you talked? I was trying to remember. Yeah, because yeah, it look he looks like a, a woman, but he talks like the guy from the men's warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. And, and by the way, by the way, I think subconsciously the guy's slogan: "You're going to like the way you look." That's where it came from because he's changing everybody's faces. And I think at one point he goes, "You're going to like the way you look." <laughs> <laughs> it really makes you wonder what the before was when they talk when somebody talks like that. And they've had a lot yeah. of work done. So now, what are you, are you still, are you surfing? Well, I, what I've been doing is, as you know, I'm starting my own podcast. So I've been doing some of that. And I know I'm, I'm going to have the wonderful Mr. Offerman and I would love you to join too. But I've been, so I, I've been doing, and I've been having a blast. So it's, it's like this. It's like, it, it's great conversations with people that I love and uh, it, it, it's called literally with Rob. Oh Lowe. my God. Really? Is it? Yeah, it is. That's so funny. I it love is. that. And, love um, that. it'll, it, it's going to launch <laughs> soon. So I've been, I've been doing that and, um, I've been doing some writing mm. and, um, but you're a surfer. So are you still doing that? Cause I think oh, that's I a it. really cool sport. I love it. I love surfing. This is a, uh, it, the spring is not a good time. To surf, you want to, winter is good and summer is good. That's when you have the the swell activity. So this mm-hmm. is always sort of the doldrums, but I cannot wait to get back in the water. It's the it it really is like a meditation for me. And are your boy? Where are your boys? They're here. My old so my oldest Matthew um, passed the bar and oh, is gosh. holy cow! Wow, can you believe it? Crazy. Um, so he's uh, on the job hunt in the legal profession. And then my youngest son, John Owen had been, when he was still at Stanford, he would, his last two summers, he um, was uh, an intern for Ryan Murphy. And, um, and Ryan offered him a job when he, when he graduated. So as luck would have it, I started doing a show with Ryan Murphy called nine one one Lone Star. And they asked Johnny to write on the writing staff. So John Owen is on the writing staff of 911 Lone Star and wrote episode six, got his first produced episode of television this year. Holy cow. We need to watch that show, P.S. 911 Lone Star. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's It's really, it's, uh, it's the, I love it because it's, it's a genre that we all, it's been around forever and we all love the sort of emergency 911, what's your emergency, but with that Ryan Murphy special sauce, Mm -hmm. which makes it really bizarre and fun and totally exciting for me as an actor every week. Ryan Murphy is really, 
he's done so many great things in terms of just really making a difference and opening oh, yeah. things up to a lot of different actors and people who didn't have a place to go before. We have um, Brian Michael Smith is an actor on our show uh, and he's trans and he plays a trans fireman. So you can imagine the amazing stories of somebody who's transitioning in the fire department culture. Wow. And, and, and that's a story you're not going to see on Chicago fire mm-hmm. or emergency. And, yeah. and it's just, it's, that's just emblematic of, and he's, by the way, he's amazing as an actor. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of the storylines I, I really love our show for doing. It's really, that's it's really so amazing. cool. You know, the show that I also really love that you did. And I think you, it was about three seasons and I forgive me. I'm, blanking on the name of it, but it was the half hour show that you did right after Parks and Rec. The Grinder. Oh God. Oh my God. That was such a good show. And you were so funny on that. You were both funny. Thank you. I love, I love the Grinder. I, I, the great thing is that nothing dies today so people can still see it. But I really believe that show was, if it had been on a streaming service, it would still be on. It was, it was the part I was born to play as a, as a comedian. It was yeah. The pilot I, of that show was excellent. It's heavenly. I we did twenty six episodes, and every one of them was just deliciously fun. Yeah, I, I watched the whole thing. The I grinder that grinds. Show. He does. He never stops. <laughs> He'll never oh, stop damn. grinding. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, Mr. Rob Lowe, this has been nothing short of enchanting. Thank you. This was, I, it was like uh, a, the dinner that we've been trying to do and we finally did it, but instead it was a podcast, which is as it should be. <laughs> All of our future dinners should yeah, be podcasts. Yeah, we should have been recording our dinners this whole time, turns out. I know. Well, I, I got lots of good stuff in store for you, Mr. Offerman, when we speak on, on literally. Wow, that's so good. Do you spell wait. it L-I-T apostrophe R-A? Ooh. Maybe I maybe I need to do that. Um, so fun, and uh, thank you so much for doing our podcast, Rob. And um, this has been yet another immortal installment of In Bed with Nick and Megan. So long. Good night. Good night. In Bed with Nick and Megan is an Earwolf production. It's produced by Megan Mullally, Kevin Bartelt, and Michael Landry. Executive produced by Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon. Music by Nancy and Beth, which can be found at www.nancyandbeth.com. If you enjoyed In Bed with Nick and Megan, make sure to rate it and review the show on Apple Podcasts.